Father, you've been so merciful to us to reveal yourself to us, to cause our dead hearts to hear your life-giving word. And Lord, we praise you that when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, when we were carrying out the desires of the flesh and of the mind, you caused us to hear the voice of the Son of God. You caused us to see the glory of his face. And Father, we thank you for the way that that reality, what we have experienced of your life-giving word, makes us confident that one day, all the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. Father, we thank you for the way that this text that's before us testifies to that. We pray that you would give us eyes to see what your word says. We pray that you would give us hearts that, that lock onto the promises in your word. Lord, we pray that you would make us people who value above all things what you have revealed to us. And Lord, we pray that that thereby you'd make us ready. Ready for whatever we face. Whether that is the death of our children, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. Lord, make it so that your word convinces us that nothing can separate us from your love in Christ. And Lord, we pray that you would cause the gospel and the kingdom and the great truths of your word to be more valuable to us than anything else in this world. Lord, make yourself, make the kingdom, make the gospel the treasure in the field for us that we're ready to go and sell all that we have that we might buy that field and have that treasure. And Lord, I pray that this would be so worked in us that we live like these things are true. And we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. I would invite you to open this morning to Genesis chapter 25. And... In God's providence, it is, I think, fitting that the first part of this text that we're looking at deals with the death of Abraham. And one of the things that makes this fitting is the fact that, as many of you may be aware, uh, a man that probably many of you are familiar with, Tim Challies, his 20-year-old his son died this week, suddenly, unexpectedly, with as far as I know, no cause, no explanation. He was, he was playing kickball in a park with friends, and he collapsed and died at 20 years old. And a couple of times this week, I heard Tim speak of how, how life is a race. And some of us are given a very long race, Abraham is given a long race. He lives for 175 years, and some of us are given a very short race. And for Nick Challies, his race was a rather short one, only 20 years. The death of Abraham gives us another opportunity to look death full in the face and to recognize that we are all running a race. So I'd like for you to look with me here at Genesis 25 and... and uh, as we come to this text, the first 11 verses of which tell us about uh, Abraham's last years, I just want to briefly <clears throat> consider with you his life. And so um, the first date that we're given about Abraham, the first age that we're given of him is in Genesis 12:4, where we're told that he was 75 years old when God called him uh, to leave Ur of the Chaldees and go to the land of Canaan. And so we know that he's 75 when he leaves for Canaan. And then 11 years later, we're told in Genesis 16, 16, that when he was 86, 
Ishmael was born to him. And so you can just remember those chapters of, of Genesis, the, the intervening chapters, the, the, uh, the, the way that he separated from Lot in Genesis 13, and the way that he rescued Lot in chapter 14, the way that he was declared righteous by faith in chapter 15, and then failed by the sinning with Hagar in chapter 16. And at that point, he's 86 years old, and 11 years have gone by. And then in the very next chapter, chapter 17, in verse 1, we read that he's 99 years old when God gives him this covenant of circumcision. And I think it's clear that uh, he was somehow more vigorous than most of us are probably going to be at 99 and 100. I don't think any of us are going to be fathering children. Uh, but Abraham is going to live another 75 years after Isaac is born. Um, so Isaac is born in, in Genesis 21, and at that point, Abraham is 100. And then we're told in Genesis 23:1 that Sarah was 127 when she died. And from earlier statements, we know that Abraham is 10 years older than Sarah. So he's 137 when his wife dies. And then... We're told that Isaac is 40 years old in this chapter, in verse 20 of Genesis 25. Isaac is 40 when he marries Rebekah, and Abraham was 100 when he had Isaac. So when Abraham saw his, his son, his only son, whom he loves, Isaac, get married, he was 140 years old. And then we're also told that Isaac was 60 when he had his sons Jacob and Esau, so Abraham was 160 years old when he became a grandfather by Isaac. And then at 175, he died. And, and I think it's, it's good to just sort of step back and look at, at that long life in just one, one broad glance. And even 100, 175 years was over relatively quickly. And even though there were some really remarkable moments in Abraham's life, God calling him out of the Ur of the, Ur of the Chaldees, to summoning him to go to Canaan, God appearing to him in Genesis 15, God appearing to him in Genesis 18, repeatedly the Lord appeared to Abraham. But most of his life was really ordinary. Most of his life was like our lives, where he's contemplating the word of God, trying to walk with God in faithfulness and just taking care of ordinary day-to-day -day responsibilities. We only read of a few occasions in which these remarkable things happened. There were a lot more ordinary days in Abraham's life than there were those extraordinary ones. So if you'd look with me here at Genesis 25.1, we read here, Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimram, Jokshan, Midan, Midian, and, and I would just observe here that this is the origin of the Midianites. And as we continue in the book of Genesis, over in chapter 37, verse 28, there are going to be some Midianite traders to whom Joseph's brothers sell him into slavery. And then over in Numbers 25 there's going to be an Israelite who takes an, a Midianite woman into his tent in response to which Phineas is very zealous. So this is the origin of the Midianites. And then you'll also remember that they came up against Israel in places like Judges chapter 6 to attack and oppress Israel. So Israel's going to have a lot of trouble with this particular set of descendants from Abraham. And then we go on, Ishbak and Shua. And then verse 3, Jokshan, who was mentioned second in verse 2, fathered Sheba. And I think that probably this is the origin of, of that tribe from which the queen of Sheba eventually came and visited Solomon to see the splendor of his kingdom. And Dedan, the sons of Dedan were Ashurim, Letushim, and Laumim. And then verse 4, the sons of Midian, who we just read about in verse, th verse 2, were Ephah, Efer, Hanok, Abidah, and Eldaah. All these were the children of Keturah. So we're introduced to these people. And at this point, I would like to invite you to just drop your eyes down to verse 13, 
where we read, these are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in the order of their birth, Nebaioth, their first, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedar. And these names may remind you of the passage that Matt just read a few moments ago in the service. Isaiah chapter 60. In Isaiah 60 verse 6, Isaiah prophesies, a multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian. And then he mentions Ephah and Sheba from Genesis 25, 2 through 4. And then a verse later in Isaiah 60 verse 7, he says, All the flocks of Kedar from Genesis 25, 13 shall be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaioth shall minister to you. So what is Isaiah prophesying? Isaiah is prophesying that one day these descendants of Abraham by means of, of Keturah and these descendants of Abraham by means of Ishmael who are going to trouble Israel throughout the rest of their history, one day there will be a reconciliation. And one day Isaiah is saying that the promise to Abraham is going to be realized. What part of that promise am I talking about? All the families of the earth will be blessed in you and in your seed. One day, Isaiah is saying in Isaiah 60, the enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And here, I think, in the book of Genesis, Ishmael is definitely seed of the serpent. And I think that probably these other, the Midianites, clearly in Numbers 25, when, when Phinehas is zealous against that Israelite man committing sexual immorality with the Midianite woman, clearly she represents seed of the serpent. One day, the enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, Isaiah is prophesying in chapter 60, is going to be removed. How? Well, did you notice Did you notice what Matt read in Isaiah 60, verse 6? Near the end of the verse, it says that these tribes, Midian and Ephah and Sheba, shall come. And, and we're going to read here in Genesis 25 that Abraham's going to send these people away to the east. So they're going to come from the east. And in verse 6 of Isaiah 60, they shall bring gold and frankincense. I mean, we almost expect him to say, and myrrh, don't we? But he didn't name that one for whatever reason. And shall bring good news. You know how that word gets translated when the Hebrew is rendered into Greek? It gets translated gospel. That's how that word gets translated. The praises of the Lord. That's how the reconciliation is going to come. Through the one that the wise men, when they brought their gifts from the east of gold and frankincense and myrrh, that's the seed of the woman that's the line of descent that Genesis is dealing with. The line of descent that's going to ultimately culminate in the Lord Jesus. So let me take you back to Genesis 25 and let's just continue here in, in what we find. Let me pick this back up in verse 5 where we read in verse 5, Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. What this designates is that Isaac is the descendant through whom the promise is going to be realized. That promise that's ultimately going to culminate in the coming of the Lord Jesus. Abraham is giving everything to Isaac because Isaac is the child of the Spirit, the, the seed of promise. And what this tells us is that though Abraham dies right here, hope lives because the seed continues. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac, but to the sons of his concubines, and I think this would include Keturah and Hagar, to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts, and while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. And we can just think about who has gone east in the book of Genesis. Cain went to the east. The, the builders of the Tower of Babel went to the east. Uh, Lot chose uh, the land that was to the east, and now these folks are moving to the east. They're, they're moving away from the land of promise. And this is anticipating the conflict that's going to arise between these peoples. And then verse 7, these are the days of the years of Abraham's life. 175 years. I suspect, I mean, I'm pretty confident, nobody in this room is going to live to be 175. We're not going to make it that long. But we can all live on the same hope that sustained Abraham. And, and we'll see that hope right here. Look, look what we read in verse 8. Abraham breathed his last and died. And then it says, in a good old age, an old man 
and full of years. And this idea of him being full of years, I think it really communicates that he was satisfied. In other words, Abraham is not one of these people who comes to the end of his life and he's, he's, he feels like everything is in ruins. No, Abraham comes to the end of his life and he feels that he has fulfilled his purpose in his generation. He's come to the end and he's kept the faith and he's fought the good fight and he's finished the course appointed for him. And then we're told that he was gathered to his people. And I think this indicates that there's an expectation that not only do these people continue in some sense, as in their, their souls continue alive after their bodies expire, but there's an anticipation that one day there's going to be a kind of reunification of soul and body. There's an expectation of resurrection, I think, reflected in this idea that Abraham was gathered to his people. And then in verse 9, we read that Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah in the field of Ephron. You remember we, bought, we, we read about how Abraham acquired this field back in Genesis 23. The son of Zohar, the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. And then verse 11, after the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Be'er Lahai Roi. Now, as we, as we look at this passage, as we think about what's before us, I first want to give you two applications from this, and then I want to, to sort of build out the second application and, um, and think with you about how Moses has built the book of Genesis. Okay, so first application. We all need to recognize that death is coming for us. Death is, death is unavoidable. Unless, unless Christ returns, everybody in this room is going to die. Unless Christ returns before that day comes. So this is one of those things that we just need to look full in the face and get ready for. And, and we need to, to recognize none of us are going to escape it. And then we need to heed the counsel of Ecclesiastes, where we're urged to live our lives to enjoy our work, to enjoy the goodness of God's good gifts to us, but know that we're going to stand in judgment. So we need to live in light of death. This text is testifying us to, to us that there's going to be a death, and I think it's also testifying to us there's going to be a resurrection. So we need to live in light of these things. And second, from what we see in this passage, I think that Abraham knew the promise, and he he clung to the promise, he held to the promise, and he sought God's blessing. And as we continue through this passage, at the end of this chapter, we'll see someone who despised his birthright, despised the blessing of God, was not concerned with the blessing. So my, my second application here is, know the promises of God and seek God's blessing. Okay, so number one, look death full in the face. It's coming. There's no avoiding it. Number two, know God's promises, seek his blessing. All right, now, building out, know the promises. Um, here's, here's my little illustration to justify the handout that, that I hope you received. My illustration is I want to invite you to imagine what would happen if, if, uh, you, if somehow we were able to transport, let's say, I mean, I, my dad recently gave me a 2006 Toyota Tacoma truck that's a manual transmission and there's nothing automatic on it, okay? But let's say that we were somehow able to transport that 2006 Toyota Tacoma truck 2,000 years into the future, all right? Or let's just say 3,000 years into the future to make it more like Genesis and us. And you plop that thing down, and you hand somebody a key, and this person looks at the key, and they look at the automobile, and they're like, what am I supposed to do with this? I don't know where that key goes. Good luck finding the, the little slot that you stick that key in to unlock the door. Good luck, 3,000 years from now person, figuring out where the ignition, I mean, we all know where the key goes in the ignition, but how is this person going to find the ignition to put the key in? And then good luck figuring out that there's a pedal down there on the left that you need to step on, and then when you turn the ignition, the engine will crank up. You, you understand what I'm saying? That person in the distant future is going to have no idea how to work this automobile. 
We all know how to work this automobile because we, well, some of us do. We live in this culture, <laughs> right? We live in this culture. People have shown us these things. I remember, I was thinking about this, um, and I remember the night that um, Josh Philpot, he, he, he finally convinced me, Jim, you've got to have an iPhone. So we went to the AT&T store, and, and he, he helped me get an iPhone. He didn't show me how to, how to work it. And so I, I, I take this phone, and I'm like, this thing has no buttons. <laughs> what am I supposed to do with this thing? And, and we just happened to have like a Kenwood intramural basketball game that night. And Edward, I'm like, Edward, how do I make a call for this, with this thing? What do I do with this thing? And Edward shows me, oh, well, there's this little phone. You push that button. And then, you know, you can find the keypad here. You punch the number in. I did not know how to work the thing. It would have taken me a long time to figure out this supposedly so intuitive, you know, iPhone, how to work it. Well, Genesis is not intuitive either. But Genesis will work for us if we come to understand it. So uh, you've received this handout. I would invite you to take a look at this handout now. And um, the first part of this, what's up at the top, Genesis eleven twenty-seven to 12, 24, you've seen before. When we got to uh, Genesis 20, we put this up on the screen, and we walked through, and I, I propose to you that this will help you understand why Moses repeats himself, and I would also propose that this will help you, this will help you internalize the contents of the book of Genesis. And so I want to, I mean, there's not going to be a quiz um, except life. Life's your quiz. Life's your test. I would encourage you to use this to memorize the contents of the book of Genesis. Now, and I don't mean memorize word for word, but I mean, I mean like this. End of Genesis 11, you've got a genealogy. And then end of Genesis 22, you've got a genealogy. And then first part of Genesis 12, you've got these great promises to Abraham. Promises that are realized in Genesis 21 and 22. You see how this is working? You're, you're, you're remembering these things in relationship to one another. It's almost like you're, you're able to recount the contents of the book by thinking about this architectural structure. So then end of Genesis 12, the second half of Genesis 12... Abraham does this sister fib. Well, that's matched by Genesis 20 when, when he does the sister fib again. And then uh, Genesis 13 and 14, two chapters about Lot. Genesis 18 and 19, two chapters about Lot. And then in the middle of the whole thing, you've got Abraham being declared righteous by faith in chapter 15, sinning with Hagar in chapter 16, and then receiving the covenant of, of circumcision in chapter 17. And, and you can internalize the contents of Genesis this way and think your way through the story by remembering these things in relationship to one another. I think Moses intended for you to do that. I think Moses intended for you to be able to think your way through. Now, um, that brings us to where we are, well, almost to where we are today. Um, today, we're in, we're in Genesis 25, and you can see how in the middle of this, you've got chapters 23 through 25, 23, Sarah's death. 24, a wife for Isaac. 25, Abraham's death. Now, I think this structure also helps you think about the point of these stories. Why are they arranged the way that they're arranged? Why is it that a wife for Isaac in Genesis 24 is bracketed by stories about his mother's death and his father's death? I think it gets at Moses' big point. Moses' big point is Sarah dies. Abraham dies, but hope lives because Isaac is going to get married and children are going to come from this union and the promise is going to continue to descend through the generations and one day a birth is going to happen that's going to fulfill the patterns of the births, births that we see in, in the book of Genesis. Births where previously barren women who can't conceive are enabled by the power of God to have children. That's going to be fulfilled when a woman who, it's not possible for her, for her to conceive, not because she's barren, because she's a virgin. She's going to conceive and give birth. So, so I think Moses' point about this line of descent that's going to culminate in the coming of the child of promise is being advanced through the structure of the narrative. And then uh, you'll, you'll notice how... Um, what we have next here, we've just looked at Genesis 25, 1 through 11, about the death of Abraham. What we have next, look at Genesis 25, 12. These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son. 
And then look at verse 19. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. And if you want to look over at Genesis 36, in Genesis 36.1, we read, these are the generations of Esau, that is Edom. And then in verse 9, these are the generations of Esau. So in Genesis 25, you've got these are the generations of twice. And uh, the reason it says toledotes is because the Hebrew word that's rendered these are the generations of is toledotes. So you got two toledotes at the end of 25. you got two toledotes in Genesis 36. And I think the reason for this is because Moses is, is structuring his narrative for you. It's also interesting that you've got this, these are the generations of Isaac here at 2519, but then the story that follows is really all about Jacob. And, and what that matches is that matches the way that in 1127 through 32, you've got the genealogy of Terah, but then the story that follows is really all about Abraham. So Moses has done the same thing in the first half of the book that he's now going to do in the second half of the book. And, and, and he's structuring his material to help you think about the material. So I want to encourage you to uh, keep this with you because I'm not going to go through the whole thing today, but I'm going to make reference back to it as we continue through Genesis. So you can take notes on it. I would encourage you to fold it in half, stick it in your Bible, keep it with you. Uh, we're not necessarily done with it yet today. We'll continue to, to look at some more things here. Um, uh, for instance, um, let me just draw your attention to the, the part that is in this sort of light green color that says 2520 through 2625. And then if you look up above, you've got 21 and 22 in that same color. And, and what I'm suggesting is that these correspond to one another so that you not only have this sort of chiastic structure in the first half and in the second half, you also have ways in which the first half is the second half is interacting with the first half, and they're corresponding to one another. There is literary artistry here that is intended to help you remember the material. It's intended to help you think about the stories in light of one another. For instance, if you think about the birth of Isaac, well, he was born to a barren woman. Look at, look at chapter 25. We'll go through this in more detail here in a second. But in 2521, Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And so what I'm suggesting to you is this story about, about Rebecca, the barren woman, conceiving and her children struggling matches uh, the story of Isaac being born earlier in, in the book. And I think that Moses has structured the material in such a way that he intends for you to see this. Now, you may think I'm crazy, and that's fine if you do. Um, I think that Moses was as sophisticated in his literature as our engineers are in their ability to produce technology, build cars, and so forth. And I think that if we can figure out how these things work, well, it'll be like getting in the automobile and turning on the engine and, and driving down the road and, and making progress in the faith. It'll be much better than having this thing sit there in the front yard, and you don't know what it's for, so the kids use it like a playground. But you, you can't turn it on because you don't know what the key is, and you don't know where the key goes. So hopefully, uh, understanding how the literature work is, works is going to turn the thing on for us and help us to make progress. Uh, look with me. I, we'll just read through what we find here about Ishmael. Look with me at verse 12 of Genesis 25. These are the generations of Ishmael. Abraham's son, which, let me just observe here, you can see how uh, at the end of 25, middle of 25, we've got this, these are the generations of Ishmael, and I've proposed that that's going to match uh, the generations of Esau in chapter 36. This is, these are not going to be the only ways in which Esau and Ishmael are parallel. Uh, Ishmael is the older son, but he's not the chosen son. Esau is the older son, but he's not the chosen son. Um, Ishmael is going to, he's, he's going to wind up marrying someone who is under God's curse, an Egyptian. She's not, she's not a, a descendant of Abraham. Uh, Esau is going to first marry uh, the Hittite women, and then he's going to marry a descendant of Ishmael. So there are all these parallels between Esau and Ishmael. And similarly, there are parallels between Isaac, the child of promise, and Jacob, the child of promise. So continuing in verse 12, 
These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar, the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. You notice what the text did not do right there? It did not do what chapter 16 said. When, when, when chapter 16 says that Sarah gave Hagar to Abraham as a wife, it's like Moses is studiously avoiding the term wife here because, because Sarah's the wife and because Isaac is the child to whom Abraham is giving the inheritance. Verse 13, these are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in the order of their birth. Nebaioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedar, Abdael, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Masa, Hadad, Tima, Jetur, Nafish, and Kedema. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by their villages and by their encampments, twelve princes, according to their tribes. And now, um, I didn't point this out, I don't think, but back in 22, in, 20, in 22, 20 through 24, there's another uh, genealogy there. It's the genealogy of Nahor. And there are 12 people in that list. So Nahor has 12 descendants. Ishmael has 12 descendants. Abraham's got one. And then Isaac has two and, and I think that what Moses wants us to do is say, why is it that the, the people who are not the recipients of the promise, why is it that the people who are worldly, why is it that they seem to be having the blessing now? And I think Moses' point is to say to the people of God, wait, trust, hope. Eventually, near the end of the book, Jacob is going to have 12 tribes descend from him. It's kind of like the Christian life. You, you don't get your best life, life now. The pagans, they can have their best life now. But if you're a Christian, you need to embrace the fact you are not going to get your best life now. It's not going to happen. You're going to be frustrated. You're going to be afflicted. You're going to be sorrowful. You're going to be, you're going to be like, like uh, Jacob is going to say at the end of, near the end of this book, he's going to say, few and evil have been the years of my life. That's what your life's going to be. Weeping endures for the night, but joy comes in the morning. We're enduring the affliction and the sorrow and the tribulation and the pain like Christ, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. And so if you look at your life and you think to yourself, you know, God made these promises to me, and I look at these worldlings, and I look at these pagans, and they seem to get everything they want now. Your next thought, I hope, is this is the way it is in the scriptures too. Nahor had 12 descendants. Abraham had one. Ishmael had 12 tribes. Isaac had two kids. But Jacob, the 12 tribes came to Jacob. Wait. Hope. So here's another application from Ishmael's genealogy, isn't it? Don't be discouraged when it seems like the world is already possessing what God has promised to his people. Don't be discouraged. Believe, hope. Verse uh, 17, these are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. And you'll notice that some of the phrases used to describe Abraham in his death, in verse 8, he died in a good old age, an old man and full of years. Those phrases are not repeated with Ishmael in verse 17. And I think that's significant. It's in part explained by verse 18, they settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Edom, I'm sorry, opposite Egypt, in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all his kinsmen. You, were, you may remember that back in 16, Genesis 16, verse 12, at the end of that verse, he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. And now, 25, 18, he settled over against all his kinsmen. So I think that this indicates that, as chapter 16 said, Esau was a wild donkey of a man, 1612. His hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And so Esau doesn't die an old man and full of years. He, he dies, he breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. And then we get this 
account of the generations of Isaac in verse 19. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac. Verse 20, Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Paran Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. So unlike Ishmael, who married an Egyptian, and unlike Esau, who married Canaanite women, uh, Isaac marries someone who's of the family of Abraham. And then verse 21, Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. I know in the modern world we have these medical explanations for things. It doesn't, it doesn't alter the fact that in the Bible we have these presentations that the power of God is able to transcend our medical explanations. In the Bible, the, the gift of Jacob and Esau to Isaac and Rebekah is due to the Lord being entreated by Isaac. And the life-giving power of God is at work here. And, and again, I would say, for a barren woman to receive the power to conceive is like for a dead body to receive the power to live. Which is to say, for a barren woman to give birth is like for a corpse to rise from the dead. So I think, again, this is, this is like a resurrection story. It's a resurrection story for this woman to, to be able to give birth in this way. And it comes by the power of God. Think of what is at stake if the Lord doesn't answer Isaac's prayer. The whole world is at stake, isn't it? Our salvation is at stake. If Isaac doesn't pray and Rebekah doesn't conceive, Jacob is never born. Which means Judah is never born. Which means Jesus never comes. Every aspect of that was vital. Isaac's prayer was vital to the conception of Jacob and Esau. Your prayers are vital to God giving life to people. Don't expect God to bless our evangelistic efforts if we don't pray. Don't expect God to bless the preaching of the word from this pulpit, the preaching of the gospel from this pulpit, the calling of people to repent of their sins and trust in Christ for salvation. Don't expect God to bless that if you don't pray for it. So I would plead with you to show up Wednesday night. Not Wednesday night when we have our, our, our gathering here. Not, I mean, this week it's going to be awesome. Amber's going to share with us about her work and what the Lord is leading her to do. It'll be a great opportunity for you to learn from her directly, get to know her a little bit, so that you can commit to pray for her as she goes to another nation to further the advance of the gospel. We, we must be a people who care for and who get to know these, these folks that have gone out from us when they come into town. We've got to be committed to this. You've got to be committed to this. If the rope is going to be held for her, it's going to be held by the congregation. And that's going to, that's going to involve you showing up and you being committed to, to pray. And I would encourage you to, to think about using this PrayerMate app. I, my attention was drawn to this by Tim Challies. I mentioned him earlier. He, he wrote this, this, uh, this blog post, How an App Revitalized my prayer life. If you're a person who uses a smartphone, I would encourage you to check out this app and, and you can make these lists and you can pray in concentric circles about your life. You can pray for your own family members and then you can pray for your closest, maybe your extended family and then your close friends. You can pray for the people in your small group. You can pray for uh, the members of this church, which I hope you're doing. You can pray for the those who have gone out to the nations from this church, you can put lists of these people in this app and then you can just, it'll give you like one a day from each one of these categories and, and you can pray through your list and you can, you can link their names to this, this great resource that, that has been produced by Tim Keller called Take Words With You where he's just gone through the Bible and pulled out all these prayers of the Bible and then this app will generate verses from that resource and attach them to these people's names. 
So you can pray the scriptures as you work through your, your, the people that you're committed to pray for. It's a great way for you to, when people give you a prayer request, you can put it in this app. And then the app will, will remind you of what you've committed to pray for. Look at verse 21. Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer. And salvation comes. Life comes because Isaac prayed. Prayerlessness is unbelief. Let's not be unbelieving people. Let's live like we believe. Let's pray. The Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. God gives life. And then verse 22, the children struggled together within her. And she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she's perplexed. She's feeling this this conflict, this turmoil in her womb. And this is just an outworking of the fraternal conflict, the brotherly conflict that we see throughout the book of Genesis. Cain kills Abel. Ishmael's mocking Isaac. In a, in a, cha- in a couple of chapters, Esau's going to be ready to kill Jacob. Uh, and then it's just going to go on. Joseph's brothers, they want to kill him. It's going to keep happening. The enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent is going to keep happening until one arises who who works salvation for all the earth and forgives those who are at enmity with him. And Joseph is an anticipation of that. Remember, he forgives his brothers. And then Jesus is going to be the fulfillment of that. So the children are struggling together within her womb, and she's, she's like, why is this happening to me? When it says at the end of verse 22, so she went to inquire of the Lord, the way this is worded, it seems that perhaps she goes to her husband Isaac, who's who is a recipient of revelation. And and then Isaac inquires of the Lord, and I think that the Lord says to Rebekah through Isaac in verse 23, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. Now in what we're about to read, we're going to see divine sovereignty. We're going to see the Lord announce the way that things are going to be. But then immediately after that, we're going to see human responsibility. And we're going to see people do what they want to do. And both aspects of this have to be held together. God is absolutely sovereign over Jacob and Esau. And Jacob and Esau, it is absolutely true that they choose what they want to do. And they do what they want to do. So in the middle of the verse there, the one, I think this is Esau, shall be stronger than the other. The older, I think that also is Esau, shall serve the younger. And I think that, again, this is surprising. This is surprising because in the ancient world, you expect the firstborn to be the ruler. You expect the firstborn to be in line to receive the blessing, the birthright, uh, the the authority to reign, and all the rest. And, And the Lord is a God who chooses the weak things of the world. That's who he is. And so he doesn't choose Ishmael, the firstborn even though Abraham wants him to be the chosen. And it's interesting, too, that Sarah clearly doesn't favor Ishmael. Sarah favors Isaac, right? Well, here, too, it seems that Isaac is going to favor Esau. Meanwhile, Rebekah favors Jacob, and the Lord chooses the unexpected one again. And then it's going to happen again with, with, uh, with Jacob, and Joseph is not going to be the firstborn. He's going to be the child of of, uh, 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 Jacob's wife, Rachel. And clearly, Rachel's going to favor her her child, just like Sarah and and her mother, uh, Rebecca. So the Lord announces, as Paul says, before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, the Lord announces, the older will serve the younger. The Lord has chosen Jacob. We're going to see from these narratives that Jacob didn't get chosen because he was righteous. The Lord doesn't choose people because they're righteous. We're going to see in in the narratives that follow that Jacob is a total scoundrel. I hope that none of my children ever treat me the way that Jacob treated Isaac. I hope that none of my children ever treat their siblings the way that Jacob treats Esau. I mean, it's happening all the time, you know. But, 
we got to be realistic, right? Kids are kids. They're going to struggle. That's it. I mean, this is life, right? Um, God doesn't choose righteous people. God chooses sinners, and sinners get transformed. Esau doesn't deserve to be chosen and saved. Jacob doesn't deserve to be chosen and saved. I didn't deserve to be chosen and saved, and you don't deserve to be chosen and saved. The Lord chooses people who deserve to go to hell, and he, and he makes them alive, and he gives them faith, and then they start acting in righteous ways, which is contrary to the way they used to act. That's what happens. I mean, it's just victory in Jesus. He sought me and bought me with his redeeming blood. He loved me ere I knew him. Right? That's the way it goes. Uh, verse 24. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red. And uh, it's interesting here that the, the word uh, red is a, is a word that has the same consonants as Adam's name. And so um, um, it's almost like he came out Adam. And um, as with Adam, who ate a forbidden fruit, Esau is going to eat. And just as Adam forfeited his blessings, Esau is going to forfeit his blessings. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. And the word here for hairy cloak, it sounds a lot like the word sa'ir, se'ir, which is going to be associated with Esau. Esau's territory is the ter territory of se'ir. It's almost like the hairy place is what that place is called, you know. Esau's the hairy guy, se'ir, and so they, they call the place where he lives hairy. And, and so, you know, they called his name Esau, which also is sort of a, a rearrangement of the consonants of sa'ir, Esau, as opposed to, you know, you get the idea. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. And the word for heel in Hebrew is akov. And so it's almost, when they name him Yaakov, it's almost like they're calling him healer because he's got a hold of his brother's heel. So his name was called healer or Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. Now that struggle with them being born and Jacob having a hold of the brother's heel, that's like... That's like a preview of their whole life. That's like a preview of who Jacob is. So verse 27, when the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field. And this is reminiscent of Ishmael, who in Genesis 16, he, was, he, was a, uh, he became skillful with the bow. It's not 16, sorry. It's in a later chapter. It's in... Um, uh, Chapter 21, verse 20, God was with Ishmael, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. Esau's a man of the field, and when his father sends him out to, to get game so that he can bless him, he says, take your bow and go hunt game. So it's like it's tying Esau to Ishmael. While Jacob, at the end of verse 27, was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. But Rebekah loved Jacob. That's a telling comment. The Lord, remember, I think, said through Isaac, the older shall serve the younger. Now, it seems to me that Isaac should hear that, and he should teach his children. He should say, God has blessed our family. God has made promises to our grandfather, or our, my father Abraham, your grandfather, and those promises are going to come through Jacob's line. But Esau... Everybody that blesses the recipient of those promises will be blessed. So Esau, bless your brother. I mean, I don't think that, I think that this comment indicates that that's not how Isaac is teaching his children. Rather, Isaac is like, hey, Esau, this food you bring me is really good. And he likes Esau because of the, the, the game, the yield, the, the, the tasty meat. Rebecca, meanwhile, loves Jacob. Now, uh, I, again, I think that Isaac, as the father, should be teaching his children, and he should have, he should have designated in his mind, Jacob's going to be the recipient of the blessing, because God said the older will serve the younger. And you know what's going to happen. He's going to say to the older, go hunt some game, make me a feast, so that I can bless you. Isaac, don't you remember who God said he was going to bless? Meanwhile, Jacob is this conniver. When it, when it says right here 
in, uh, in verse 20, 29, once when Jacob was cooking stew, you, you could, I mean, this is like, he, this is stew, the, the food is not the only thing he's cooking up. This is suggestive. I, as we read about Jacob, he is, he's entrepreneurial, he's energetic, he's active, he's always scheming, he's always initiating conversations, he's always trying to get what he wants. And so he's cooking a stew here, he's laying a trap is what he's doing. And it works. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew. And, and the, the word, that, or what, the way it's rendered here is, it's like Esau says, let me eat some of that red red. You know, it's just, it's just like he's grunting. Give me some food. I'm exhausted. Therefore, his name was called, and Edom is, the, is it just a transliteration. It's like the, his name was called red here. You know, they named him after the food that he wanted so badly. And again, you can see the consonants in Adam's name, Adam. Adom. It's very similar. Jacob said, now here's, here's what Jacob's been cooking up. Because it's like Jacob's ready. And he knows. Esau's going to come in. He's going to be weak. And I'm going to take advantage of him. Sell me your birthright now. And it's clear. The food will come to you when you give me the birthright. Esau said, I'm about to die, which, let's just observe here, is false. (laughs) Esau has been out hunting. However tired, however hungry he may be, he is not on the verge of death. If he were on the verge of death, all he has to do is say, Dad, Mom, I need some water, some food, and Jacob won't give me any, any. He's not about to die. And so this reveals his character, doesn't it? He said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Esau, that birthright is about the salvation of the whole world. That birthright is about the line of promise through whom the Savior will come. Of what use is the birthright? That's everything, Esau. Your life doesn't depend on that stew. Your life really does depend upon that birthright. In a way that you haven't even begun to imagine. When When Esau says, of what use is a birthright to me? You know what that's like? That's like somebody saying, of what use is Jesus? to me of what use is the gospel to me of what use is this message that you're trying to communicate to me to me well it's everything isn't it you need this a lot they need the gospel they need Jesus a lot more than they need this mess of pottage Jacob said swear to me now Jacob's trying to close the deal He he knows his brother. He knows his brother is not thinking about the promise. He knows his brother is not interested in family honor, family blessing. His brother just wants food. And Jacob wants to take. He wants to grasp. You know, you can't really sell a birthright, can you? The, uh, The birthright is, it arises from the fact that Esau was born first. And they can make this deal... And Esau can swear this oath that he's handed it over to Jacob. It doesn't change the fact. Esau came out first. There is something that will make it so that Jacob is the recipient of the blessing, however. Isn't there? The word of God. And it's like Jacob is trying to get by his scheming what God has already given him by promise. Rather than try to take this from his brother, I submit to you that if this is what Jacob wants, he should should simply rest in God's promise. He should believe the word of God. And if he wants to do, he could do like his father and call out to the Lord 
and say, Lord, you said the older will serve the younger. I'm the younger, so do it. I don't know how you're going to do it. I don't know how you're going to work it out, but I need you to bring it to pass. That's what Jacob could do. That would be a lot more useful than him being a scoundrel and defrauding his brother. God does not need the lies of man to accomplish his truth. God does not need underhanded, wicked ways to establish righteousness. God does not need Jacob stealing the birthright to bring the blessing, to bring the promise, to bring the seed through Jacob's line. All this does, all this does is create regret for Jacob. That's all it does. And it makes a mess of his life. It, it's, Jacob's actions are going to result in major fractures in the family, as we're going to see in coming narratives. Middle of verse 33, so he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew. And before I read the next words, I just want to remind you of what Israel did at the golden calf. It says, they sat down to eat and drink and rose up. And in our English translations, it says it, they rose up to play. But the, the, the Hebrew word for they rose up to play is Isaac's name. They rose up to Isaac. Or, you know, they rose up to make sport. They rose up to laugh. Uh, they rose up to do Isaac, basically. And, and I think this is, I think Moses meant for us to think of that passage in this passage when he says, he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Now, what's the, what's the point of connection? Well, Esau has just committed idolatry, hasn't he? Esau has just traded away the blessing and the birthright from the living God for temporary satisfaction of his belly. We can think of the Apostle Paul speaking in Philippians 3 of those whose God is their belly, their appetites. Thus Esau despised his birthright. That comment, Moses is just telling you what he's just shown you. He showed you Esau despises birthright. He showed you Esau disregard the promise. And then he tells you, Esau despised his birthright. Um, just one, one comment on the passage that was our call to worship this morning. When it says that uh, Esau found no place for repentance, and then it says, though he sought it with tears. Let me just read you uh, what it says here. It says in Hebrews 12, 17, you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. We're going to see in the narrative that what he's going to seek with tears is not repentance, but the blessing. When Jacob steals the blessing, Esau is going to come in and he's going to cry out. It's really poignant. It's devastatingly sad. He's going to say twice, bless me, even me, my father. And Isaac's going to have no blessing for him. So Esau, Esau is not seeking repentance and not finding it. He's seeking the blessing and finding no place for repentance. So what Esau needs to do is Esau needs to say, I have disregarded the hope of salvation created by the word of God. That, that, that the birthright and the blessing really signify. That's what I need to repent of. I need to repent of putting my appetite before my concern for God and his kingdom. I need to repent of my idolatry in this way. He needs to repent, and then he would get the blessing. Well, not the blessing. I mean, it's going to Jacob, right? But you understand what I'm saying. He, would, he could bless Abraham and, and, and be blessed for that reason. So, final application here for this sermon today. Don't despise the promise. Don't be like Esau. Don't despise God's promise to save. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer in Jesus, what this looks like is don't walk out of here without talking to somebody about what it looks like to turn from a life of sin and idolatry and, and the pursuit of your own flesh, to turn from all that to a life of seeking to please God 
by believing what he said and by trusting in what he's accomplished by sending the Savior, the seed of promise. Don't leave without settling this. Turn. Don't despise the promise. And, and for those of us in the room who are already believers, don't despise the promise by living like these things don't matter. And my two big applications are, learn the Bible, internalize this thing, and pray. Call on the Lord to keep his promises, to give life, even life from the dead. Let's pray together. Father, you are our only hope. Without you, we would be wandering in a trackless waste, in a barren wilderness. But with you, Lord, the desolate place becomes like the Garden of Eden. And Lord, though we must walk through the valley of the shadow, We pray that your word would dwell richly within us, that your rod and staff would comfort us. We pray, Lord, that even in the presence of our enemies, you would prepare a table before us, that you would cause us to drink honey from the rock and eat of the bread of heaven. And we pray, Father, that you would make it so that we are confident that we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We pray that your word would do its work in us. In the name of him who ever lives and reigns, our Lord Jesus, with you and the Holy Spirit, world without end. Amen.